0: Good afternoon, people. I am a sober alcoholic and my name is Lloyd. Last name is McDonald. Where I come from in Nova Scotia, you're still anonymous if you're a McDonald. There's just so damn many of us. Uh, I am last week I turned 76 years old. I had my last drink when I was 38. So i spent <clears throat> half of my time on this earth in recovery, which is nice, very nice. Today I keep track of my days, this is um, 13,790 days that I haven't had to have a drink of alcohol or use any other drug to um, get me out of who I really am and what's really going on. I come from a good Catholic family down in Nova Scotia. My, um, my mother was 23, my dad was 33 when they got married. I was about four and a half months along when they did get married, so uh, I was might be one of the um, reasons they did. But they went on to have 14 more after me. They were unfortunately very fertile Catholics who followed their religion and did what they were told by the priests and the bishop. And uh, consequently, they had an an enormous family. uh, As the oldest, I got all the privileges. I was my mother's favorite, so I didn't grow up with a lot of trauma, unless you count a new baby every year as being a trauma. Um, The drinking that I did see was not great because some of my uncles and some of my cousins and on my dad's, uh, on my mom's side, my grandma and grandpa both drank kind of funny sometimes. So both of my grandmas were were Irish background. One grandfather was uh, Scottish background. The other grandfather was Acadian French and they'd been in what's now Canada since 1634. They came over from France in 1634. And uh, so I like to say with the Irish and the Scots and the Acadian French, I was born with great thirst. Uh, I was able to get away a lot, with a lot when I was a kid. I had asthma, so I should, if I didn't have it, I'd fake it. And I could pretty much do what I wanted a lot of the time. And one of my big things that I had, which I discovered later on when I was doing my fear inventory was like, I never wanted anybody to know who I really was or what I was really like. Because I thought that if they ever knew who I was, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me because I wasn't very much, wasn't very good. I was an altar boy, did the whole bit, you know, I was a kid, went to mass. um, We had Sunday school for six weeks in the summer with the nuns. And uh, I didn't learn love. I didn't learn compassion. I didn't learn forgiveness. I didn't learn uh, the goodness of God, all of this sort of stuff. I learned fear. I learned uh, uh, guilt. I learned remorse. I learned uh, hopelessness. I was going to go to hell because I just wasn't good enough. And that's a hard way to live. I was 15 years old when I took my first drinks. And from the very get-go, I loved it. I loved it immensely. I found out that I could drink some pretty harsh stuff and get up and go, to, go right back to whatever I was doing the next day. Um, my little town in Nova Scotia was called Mulgrave and I used to get some drinks into me and I'd think Mulgrave is in the center of the world and I'm right in the middle of Mulgrave. It felt good from the tips of my toes to the top of my head. And I loved that feeling. And yet, when I was confirmed when I was 12 years old, the bishop had got us to make this solemn pledge that we wouldn't drink alcohol until we were 21. So I was sinning every time I did it. And then I went to confession and the priest asked, have you told me everything? And I said, yes, Father. He says, are you sure? And I said, yes, Father. He says, you're not practicing self-abuse, are you? And that sounded terrible. So I said, oh, of course not. Of course not, Father. So I went to one of some of the other altar boys and said, what's this self-abuse stuff? And they told me, and uh, it didn't feel like abuse. But I was going to go to hell for doing that, too. And uh, so something had to give, something had to give. Um, sex and alcohol were more important than religion. So therefore, I threw out the church, threw out God, decided I was an atheist. A couple of years later, um, I found out about sex with other people, and that was even better. So I um, was reinforced in my beliefs until I was t- 38 years old and had my last drink. I, you know, religion and God were out of my life, and I lived a pretty bizarre life, I suppose, looking back on it now. Because with that underlying fear of anybody ever knows what I'm really like, to have nothing to do with me, I couldn't take risks. I couldn't sort of open up to people. I was like the the pinball on the pinball machine. You know, the old pinball machines with the little flippers. You know, I'd be going along, rolling along, and a flipper would flip out, and I'd go Bing, ding, 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 off a bunch of uh, bumpers, there'd be noise, there'd be um, all kinds of weird shit happening, and that was my life. I, uh, living in fairly rural Nova Scotia, once you started to drive, there was no question about whether you drink and drive, because if you're going to go to dances, etc. The only way you get there is with a car, and the only way to go to a dance is drunk. Or if not drunk at the beginning, certainly drunk at the end. My first car lasted me seven weeks. I was 19 years old, My cousin taught me to drive and we skipped the lesson on drinking and driving. So I went to a dance one night in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. It was two of my brothers and three of my, I had four of my friends actually. And I was pretty drunk by the time I came home. I'd made a couple of trips to the bootleggers and I was drinking other people's bottle and my own bottle. And I dropped one guy down about six miles down the shore from where I lived along the coast. And on the trip back up, I was on a dirt road, and it was a 90-degree turn, and I tried to make that turn at 70 miles an hour, and I lost control of the car and put it into the ocean upside down. Now, that was... um, It could have been a real disaster, but it was only about six feet of water, five to six feet of water, and we all managed to scramble ashore. It was the 9th of Maine. It was quite cold, I'll tell you that much. The car was a total write-off the next day when I got it out, but um, we all escaped injury. (laughs) So I called the police when I got home. The RCMP were 20 miles away, and I said I put my car into the um, into the street. And they said, uh, "Was anybody hurt?" And I said, "No, we're all okay." And they said, "Was there any alcohol involved?" And I said, "Nope, no alcohol." I said, "Okay, come on over tomorrow and report it in the morning." I didn't realize at the time just how lucky I was, but 30 years later, when I was um, well, even probably 25 years later. Going into Collinsbury Penitentiary, once I was sober here in Kingston, I met a guy, and his story was almost the same as mine. It was the same summer, summer 66. He stolen a car in St. Catharines, Ontario, and he was driving in Welland, Ontario, joyriding with four of his friends. And um, the police started to chase him, and he didn't stop. He put his car into the Welland Canal, and the other four people all drowned because he put it into 50 feet of water, not five feet of water. The only difference between that man and myself was about 45 feet of water and he went to prison and spent most, most of the rest of the next 25 years in prison because once you're in there it's hard to get out so i was very very fortunate i wasn't very good with relationships uh you know i did meet a few people and we had some some fun and uh, but i was living in halifax in 1971 doing construction work i dropped out of high school with a grade 10 education as it was more fun to party and have a good time than it was to go to school. I met a woman who came down for a visit from Toronto. I called her a woman. She was nineteen years old. I was twenty-four, and she came to visit a guy that's living in the house with me. Um, she, they, they'd gone to school together. She was still at University of Toronto, and um, we hit it off. She damn near train me the first night. She came down for the visit. She was a nineteen-year-old a, a Jewish woman from Toronto, and here I am, this construction worker from Nova Scotia, and I drinker and all this sort of shit, and she damn near drank me under the ground. If she hadn't gotten sick about 3 a.m., I would have, I would have lost, but she did get sick. She got sick in my bed <laughs> and helped me the next day to clean my sheets, take them to the laundromat, and I thought, ooh, she sounds like a keeper. So I came up to Toronto to visit her uh, a couple of times, and then I moved up, and we moved in together, and we were together for about four and a half years. Uh, I continued to drink. Uh, I took a fine mechanics 40-week course and started to repair cameras for a living. A couple of years of being together with her, though, she eventually said to me, you're becoming an alcoholic, you're going to drink yourself to death. I'm not going to stay and watch you do it. It's either me or the booze. I was 27 at the time, and um, so I said, okay, because I really wanted to be with her. I stopped drinking, but that's all I did. I didn't change in any sort of way. I stopped drinking. And after... I guess about a year of that or so. She sort of, nothing else had changed. I didn't go to a program. I didn't look for recovery. I just didn't drink. And she was responsible for making my decisions and keeping me happy. And she was going to law school, but it's time in Kingston where I am now. And so I moved down to Kingston at the end of 1975 and uh, couldn't repair cameras because I didn't have the equipment, et cetera. So I started to make jewelry for a living. I did that for about 17 years. Being your, being your own boss is a little, makes it a little easier to drink the way I wanted to drink anyway. But she eased me out of her life. She just said, this is not working. And she eased me out of her life. And I had no reason not to start drinking again. It took me several months after we split up before I started. And uh, I became aware of the fact. I was aware of the fact. I, I said to myself in my head, okay, you've got a problem with alcohol. If it ever gets bad enough, you'll stop. Um, and so for, that's what ruined me for the next eleven years. But a year and a half after I split up with um, with, uh, with with Toby, I met Penny, who was a customer of mine. She bought some jewelry from me. And she was finishing up her training as a psychiatrist at the medical school, and um, I tell you, I made a bracelet for her, a bangle bracelet. And at some point, it broke from you know being open and closed, and she took the pieces and down to my sh- Stand in the in the farmer's market and said, "Can you make me a crucifix?" And I thought, "What does this scientific woman want? It was a a, a stupid uh, religious symbol like that?" but she's some kind of religious nut. And so I made her the crucifix. And several months later, I had a cardiac arrest. I had an underlying heart problem. I was in the hospital when it happened, at one o'clock in the morning. I was out for about forty minutes, and they were resuscitating me the whole time. Um, and what happened to me was, I had this experience of. Um, For an atheist, it's a strange experience, but I'm in the hospital, and all of a sudden, I'm floating in some dark space, and it felt more comfortable than the hospital, that's for sure. There's nobody shouting at me or trying to put tubes down my throat or anything like that, and um, so I floated there for a little bit, and then I moved on through this space, and I met some shimmering beings of light, and it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't the... St. Peter, it wasn't anything like that. It was just these beings of light. And I got this feeling from them of, of welcome and, and warmth. And I felt, I was like a little puppy dog, you know, wagging my tail. and really happy to be there. So there was absolutely no fear and no worries. And I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay there with them. But after a while, I got this feeling that I was going to be, I was being pulled away from them. And I got this little message from them, sort of, wasn't verbal, but it was, now don't you do anything silly just to get back here. And so the next thing I knew, I was conscious for a few seconds and it wasn't pleasant. And then the next thing I knew after that, I uh, was being reeled down the hallway into the coronary care unit, and for the next couple of days, I just wanted to talk about how great it was to be dead, and I was really disappointed and, and unhappy with the doctors and the medical team who brought me back. So they put me on some heavy-duty antipsychotic medication for a day or two to get me out of that mood. In the meantime, I thought about this, this religious, nut, this, this doctor that I had made that truth fix for, so I called her and she came over and visited me in the hospital. I told him my story, but mostly she was talking about how difficult it was for her to find somebody to have a relationship with in a city the size of Kingston. It's a fairly small city, and when she finished her training, she might have to move away. So part of my mind said, get this woman's phone number and give her a call. So I did when I got out of the hospital. And we, uh, last Sunday, was um, a week ago, yesterday, it was 45 years we'd been together. The first seven years I drank. After I did work the dozens, I worked the 12th year, she developed bipolar illness and had to stop working. And, uh, but we're still together. She put up with my drinking a lot better than the first woman had because she'd seen some drinking in her own family. We were together for about five years when she started saying things like, You embarrass me when you drink. Sometimes you frighten me when you drink. I had a buddy who was in the same, uh, the same situation. And he came over because I, I he made a display case for me. It was a, He was a, uh, a metal worker, copper and all that sort of stuff. And he made me a n- really nice display case. And I <clears throat> needed to pay him for it. And we used to have the odd drink together. So he came over and I said, how are you and Julie doing? Because his wife, uh, he said, oh, things are good at home. He said, um, I'm going to AA. And I had that feeling Bill Wilson talked about in the, in the big book about, you know, his buddy, Evie came to see him and they're going to be able to relive old days. And I thought, Oh, crap, you know, it's going to AA. I said that. as well, yeah, I got a bottle of Irish whiskey here. And he says, oh, I haven't stopped drinking. He said, I'm just going out to AA, and it's, it's working really well. She's not talking about leaving anymore at all. So somebody, either him or I, had the bright idea that it, it worked for him. It might work for me. And uh, I put a sign in my front, the front door of the apartment. This apartment had my jewelry little jewelry shop where I made the jewelry and sold the jewelry. I'm on one end of it, and she, had, she did her psychotherapy. She was in private practice with her patients in what would have been the living room on the other side of the kitchen. And so we were making good use of this apartment. So I put a sign on the door saying, go on to an AA meeting, because she was out somewhere. I was pushing it selling it as much as I could. And I went to the meeting, and it was, it was good. We had, had a couple of drinks, so we were fairly mellow. And I believe what I saw when I, when I came into the meeting, I believed that people who said they were sober were actually sober. Um, their whole being shouted it out. As it's, Again, it says somewhere in the big book. Their whole being shouted it out. Uh, their body language, you know, their directness of, of, of looking at you, their, their, their laughter over sort of stupid and, uh, and, 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 and sometimes horrible things. And I said to myself, well, I'm glad they've got this. Thank goodness I don't need it. But if I ever get bad enough. So I went to six meetings and got a 10-day period. And for the next two years, I hid my drinks hid my bottles, snuck the empties out of the apartment, lied to my partner, um, and tried to sort of have a relationship and be drinking the way I wanted and needed to. And finally, in mid February of 1985, I reached the point where I could no longer continue the way I was. My Penny, my partner, was um, on the board of Interval House for, for Battered Women in Kingston. She's on the provincial committee for houses, and she'd gone off to a conference for a couple of days. So she was gone Wednesday and Thursday, coming back Friday evening. Wednesday and Thursday, I got drunk. Friday morning, I woke up with a bad hangover. And I knew I'd better be sober that night because she was starting to talk again about my drinking. But I really had this bad hangover. And the store was just a block and a half away. So I had a little sign that said, back in five minutes from my little shop, put the sign up and went and got myself a Mickey of vodka. I just said to myself, I'll have one vodka and orange juice and then I'll mellow out during the day and I won't drink anything on the weekend. And on Monday I'll sneak another bottle in and we'll take it from there. That was my plan for that was my life plan at that point for my future. Um, but by the time I closed my little shop around five that afternoon, I was on the third Mickey of vodka, because after that first drink happened, you know, that was it. I went to the hockey game, which I'd been planning on doing, and she knew I'd be there. And I was in a pretty good mood when I went up to the hockey game. And coming home from the hockey game, though, I was in a bad mood because I knew I was going to, the shit was going to hit the fan when I got home. It was February, I was wearing a big parka, I was staggering along. People laughed at me. And I got more and more upset, more and more angry. And as I got closer to where I lived, the three people ahead of me uh, Kingston's a, a, a university town, among other things. Queen's University had at that time about 10,000 undergraduate students. And there's probably a couple of students, you know, three, two guys and a gal ahead of me and one of them turned and saw me staggering along said something to the other two and all three of them stopped and looked at me and laughed and all the hatred and all the frustration and all the disappointment and everything that had been building up inside me for a long long time all came to the surface and the only weapon I had was a Swiss army knife but I got that knife out I got that knife open I followed them around the corner from where I was I I lived about half a block in the other direction I followed them around the corner and they saw me staggering along with his knife. One let out a yelp, and all three of them headed for the police station a couple of blocks away. Now, if I tried that with tougher people. I'd have been eating that night. But these people were um, just, you know, students, as I said, probably, and I freaked them out. And uh, I staggered home. There were no consequences to that in terms of outside myself. When I got home, Penny was bitterly disappointed. I ended up sleeping in the spare bedroom that night. But when I woke up the next morning, my thought was, if I had had a better weapon last night, I would have killed people. Somebody would have died if I had a gun. Somebody would have died if I had a sword or an axe. All I had was a stupid Swiss army knife. I I can no longer safely take another drink. Because all I was going to have was that one vodka, just to mellow me out a little bit yesterday morning. And here I am, as close as I'd ever want to committing murder. So I think I'd taken those first two steps that morning when I woke up. Step one, I was powerless over alcohol. My life was certainly unmanageable. Step two, even though I was an atheist, I did believe that alcohol and schizonomists worked for the people that needed it. And suddenly I had become one of those people. So I knew that where I needed to go. It took me a couple of days before the first meeting. <clears throat> but I got to that meeting. There were only traditional meetings in those days. There's no such thing as secular AA, but I had reached the bottom where I had to do whatever I needed to do in order not to take that next drink. It became life or death. It's like I had a gun in my head. If I pulled that trigger and took that first drink, all bets were off. So I had a bit of willingness that I hadn't had before and had some open-mindedness because I had no other choice. Now, I'm still doubtful. If if somebody had told me that night at that first meeting, you got to get down on your knees and pray to Jesus or you're not going to get sober, I might have gone back out and died, but nobody said that. I said, you're going to have to find a higher power, but you get to decide what it is. So I could work with that. And I heard probably most of what I needed to hear in terms of um, the head at that very first meeting. They told me that I had a disease, first of all. It's not bad character. You're not a bad person. You have an illness. And that illness condemns you once you're taking that first drink to not knowing when you're going to stop. It's an allergy of sorts of the body. And that allergy is triggered by the mind. The mind, your mind is un, um, well, immature for one thing. Um, one of my, my toughest spots I used to say the newcomer was his or her majesty the baby because it had infantile emotional reactions. And I had never grown up. You know, when I took those first drinks at 15. I stopped growing because I didn't have to anymore because the, the booze sort of covered everything. So I was a 38-year-old with the, you know, immature emotional reactions of a 15-year-old who was very, very awkward and backward and not very good at life. And so I needed to work my way through the rest of the steps. They said, we do this one day at a time. It's not tomorrow you'll worry about it. It's not Christmas. It's not your birthday. We stay sober today, and anyone can stay sober for just one day. They said it's not the caboose that kills you if you get by a train. It's the locomotive, so it's that first drink that does it. So you don't take that first drink. You don't get drunk. Guarantee. You said, they said you are spiritually in really rough shape. And not only are you physically addicted, mentally and emotionally immature, you're spiritually, in my case, I was spiritually dead. This was a cold, empty universe going nowhere, and I had nothing to, you know, no, no, no point to my life that's gonna to have to change, they told me. They said, there's some practical things you need to do. One is you gotta make sure you don't get too hungry, don't get too lonely, don't get too angry, don't get too tired. These are all things that can cause you to take that drink. And once you've taken the drink, you know, you're know, you done. You're not in control anymore. They said, you're gonna to have to work your way through these steps, but you have, don't have to do it all at once. You know, it's, it's one step at a time. Get a home group because a home group is like a family. They get to know you really well and they can keep you on track. Plus, you get some responsibility and accountability as part of a group. There are things you'll need to do. They said you need to have a sponsor. A sponsor is a guide. If you're in Halifax and you want to go to Vancouver and you've never been and you the maps aren't making that much sense to you, you need somebody who's done it. Somebody who can tell you, oh, yeah, okay, you gotta go, you gotta go north till you hit um, Brunswick, and then you got to go north a little further till you get to St. Lawrence River, and then you got to make a left-hand turn and try to avoid Toronto if you can. Then there's a whole bunch of grass and prairies, and then you get some really big mountains to go over. This is how you get to Vancouver. So find somebody who's done it. So that made sense to me as well. And uh, I started going to meetings, of course. They said 90 meetings in 90 days. I got to 75 or so that first 90 days. Uh, because I worked for myself, I... Uh, I didn't have uh, to make excuses or anything like that, leave work or anything like that for meetings. It took me a couple of months to come to terms with that third step because people prayed. I remember sort of being okay with the serenity prayer because it's pretty general, but I wouldn't do the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, which everybody did in those days for the first three months or so, or I guess two months, two and a half months. But then I remember coming home one night from a a big book study meeting with my big book under my arm and thinking, who the hell am I to say there's No, God, who am I I to say prayer doesn't work? Everybody who was sober around the same time I did were all praying and they all looked like they were doing better than me. Now, that was not a valid comparison. I was comparing their outsides with my insides and that didn't really work. But I said, what the heck, I might as well. So I sort of closed the bedroom doors so nobody could see me, got down on my knees and said a few prayers. The ones I chose were, of course, the Lord's Prayer, which was, said at every meeting, the serenity prayer. Uh, The third step prayer from, the big book, page sixty-three, and then uh, the twenty-third psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Nothing happened. Nothing, no bright lights or anything like that. But I, I just started doing that on a regular basis. What I was doing basically was saying, I'm not the higher power anymore. And I remember in that early in that summer of um, nineteen eighty-five, um, the fiftieth uh, World Conference of AA was happening in Montreal. So I was five months sober and. Um, there's a guy with me for four months sobriety and two or three months sobriety. We all piled into my car and went down there for the, for the Sunday part of the, uh, the conference. There was a, a panel. Um, Joe from Joe and Charlie was one of the three speakers and a, a woman from New Zealand and a guy from South America. And uh, it was an amazing thing. There was 50,000 that was in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. And we did the prayer at the end. We all joined hands. And I thought, wow, none of us are ever going to take a drink again. And driving back from Montreal to Kingston was about a three-hour drive. and It's just amazing. And sad to say, of those four of us, I'm the only one who got a year. The other three all went back out, and I have no idea what became of them. Uh, after, even after that, they, they just didn't get it. They hadn't hit the kind of bottom of it that needed to be hit. I... Um, I lingered on step four. I was afraid of that step. <coughs> I was about 11 months sober when I finished it. It was in 1986. I went away to a <coughs> Cistercian monastery. It's a silent order. And um, the only time people spoke was at dinner time. The rest of the time you were doing on your stuff on your own. And there was no radio, no television. And of course, in those days, no cell phones or anything like that. So. I had my big book, had my 12 and 12, had my lots of paper, a couple of pens, and the first thing I had to do was forget about the fact there was such a thing as a fifth step, and so what I did was I um, wrote down my list of fears. My biggest fear, again, as I said, was if anybody knows what I'm like, I have nothing to do with me. I <clears> had <throat> another big fear, which was fear of flying. Back in those hit- days, hitchhiking was just sort of an in thing, had been, you know, for the, all through the 70s, and I remember... Hitchhiking from Ontario to Nova Scotia, or uh, when uh, after that first relationship broke up, hitchhiking from Kingston, Ontario to the West Coast. And uh, I felt more comfortable in the middle of the night with my thumb stuck over to the side of a road to be picked up by anybody, no matter what their state of inebriation or whatever, than I did on a well-maintained aircraft. I figured, I don't believe in God, but if he ever gets me to 30,000 feet, I'm done. (coughs) So... I had to look at those fears and uh, the list of resentments, and I had resentments going back to when I was five years old, and of course, the harm's done to others. I, um, I had a list of three categories: one was sex, one was money, and one was miscellaneous, and my, my childhood, my 18 years, my twenties, my thirties, and who I had harmed, what I had done, you know what it had affected in me. So I did the traditional fourth step and then Two things were in code. I was never going to tell those to anybody. And I put it away when I got back home again from that weekend. That was the weekend that the spaceship or space shuttle was, I guess, the source of the Columbia, 1986. It's the one that didn't, didn't make it. And uh, I didn't hear anything about it that weekend until after I got away from that monastery. So I got my one year. So I'm standing there. got my one year medallion. Was, uh, medallion in my hand and listened to people say nice things about me. I'd had a speaker, and one of the old timers from my group came over to me in a gruff sort of way. He said, well, you had a free ride so far. It's time to give something back. And it didn't feel like a free ride that first year. But I said, what do you want me to do, Al? So he said, fill out this form. So I filled out the form, and him and another guy got back to me two weeks later and said, congratulations. You have a new Oakside GSR for the group in Collins Bay Penitentiary. You're going to bring a speaker in every Tuesday at the penitentiary, and a couple other people can get them. And I did that for the next four years. They didn't just leave me to do it. I mean, they, they supported me and helped me. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to say, you know. What am I going to say to those inmates? I, I don't have any history of, a, you know, I've got, I haven't got a big criminal record or anything like that. What can I say that will help them? I discovered when I went in, <coughs> the one that they wanted to hear was how I stayed sober. So they, they said, well, let's understand, let's see if I understand this, you know. You've got an apartment downtown. It's three blocks from where you live to where you keep your car. There's two bars and a liquor store between the two. And yet, every Tuesday evening, you walk past the bars, you walk past the liquor store, and you get in your car and you come out here. How do you do that? So, they wanted us to know how to stay sober. And of course, I got the most out of doing that than, than anybody else. And uh, but there I was. I was a little over a year sober. My first sponsor died. He was an older, older man. Uh, although I don't know if he's that much older than I am right now, and um, I looked around for a, a tough sponsor, and I got one. His name was Big Jim, and he uh, he touted the big book and he, he floated that thing, at that thing. And uh, when I asked him to be my sponsor, he says, "Lloyd, do you want to get well?" Didn't ask me if I wanted to stay sober. He said, "Do you want to get well?" I said, "Yes, Jim, I think I do." And he gave me some very clear cut guidelines on what he wanted me to do um you've got to go to at least three meetings a week one of them has to be a big book study you've got to um ask your higher power for help in the morning thank your higher power at night you got to work your way through the rest of the steps a certain passages of the big book i want you to read every day and i did that for about seven and a half years because it was the only literature available really um it says um, oh yes if you're doing anything illegal or immoral stop and if you aren't don't start and he sort of listened to me bullshitting about the fifth step for a couple of months. And finally, one Friday, he said to me at the Friday evening meeting, I'm going to pick you up 1.30 Monday afternoon. You're going to go down by the lake and you're going to do your um, your fifth step with me. And I said, yes, Jim. Because I was just about as much afraid of Jim as I was doing that step. But I do remember that Monday morning at 10.30 in the morning in the bathroom on my knees puking at the idea of going and sharing this stuff with this guy. Uh, you know, it took all the courage that he had, not my courage. <coughs> to get me to do that and um, so at 1 30 i was outside and we sat in his car down by the lake he opened his big book to page 63 and read the prayer there put himself in the proper frame of mind he said okay he said tell me the story of your life he says don't minimize don't justify just what went on what are you afraid of you know what are you resentful about who have you hurt it took about two and a half hours and um, the biggies came out about halfway through He didn't throw me out of the car he didn't react He drove me home afterwards, and I saw him at the meeting that night. And uh, I came in through the church basement doors, and there he was over by the coffee pots. And this big, warm, loving smile lit up his face when he saw me. I thought, my God, I spent the whole afternoon telling him the worst things I could about myself. And the man loves me. Maybe I better ease up a little bit of myself. For me, the fifth step was something that had to be experienced. I couldn't learn much about the fifth step from hearing what other people had to say by reading about it. I had to do it. And again, there's one of those things that they say, if you skip this step, you may not be able to overcome drinking. Steps six and seven, defects of character. Sure, i got them. Want to get rid of them? Sure. Um, I'm still not, I don't consider myself a Christian or follower of any other religion. I do believe there's a power greater than I am because we exhibit it here every day that we get together in these meetings, every day that we stay sober. There is a higher power of working, there's the power of, collective fellowship or whatever you want to call it but there's there's a power here that I can't have when I'm alone. Eight and nine were a little difficult for me. I had this list of, it's funny the list in the fourth step of the people I resent for that was mostly the list of the eighth step of the people I had to make amends to and um, right up there near the top i had been self-employed for quite some time and making jewelry and I was part of the underground economy for after a while and so I had to do nine years of tax returns. I take them into the Canadian Revenue Office, and I expected the fireworks would start, but they just took them, and they get back to me, and they said, you owe us this much money, and how are you going to pay us? And I said, well, if you take monthly payments, they said, we're not a bank, go to the bank. So I went to a bank, and I was totally honest with them. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober. This is how much I make a year. Didn't file a tax return for nine years. This is what I owe them. Can you help me? And they t- thought about it, and they said, sure. Would you like a credit card, too? So I got my first credit card at the age of 40. Steps 11, and twelve have been called maintenance steps. I continue to work this program. I continue to uh, try to give away what was freely given to me. I do keep an eye on my own shortcomings defects, whatever you want to call them uh, less than ideal sit- solutions sit- less than ideal solutions to situations is a good way of putting it so i uh, I've discovered one thing that I t- can use a tool called Sober, S O B E R, whenever I'm getting upset or uh, I'm starting to feel tense, sober, S O B E R, stop, observe, breathe, evaluate. Do I need to say anything? Um, can I say it in a kind way? Do I need to say it now? Um, and then respond. It makes life much simpler. <clears throat> I've had a lot of good things happen, I've had some bad things happen during the the period that I've been sober today marks um, 13,790 days, one day at a time. I haven't had to have a drink of alcohol. I still keep track of my days. Among the good things, we are, Penny and I are still together after 45 years. Um, uh, I also, after about seven years, went back to school. And um, I don't have a high school diploma. I never did. I, I dropped out with grade 10. But Queen's University here in Kingston allowed me to take a course and I did quite well with it and I took three more and did quite well with them. Then they let me switch to full-time. I was 44, I guess, when I started. So I did a four-year honours bachelor program in psychology and sociology and then I did a master's degree in industrial relations because I got an interest in that. I still don't have a high school diploma but I got an honours BA and a master's degree. I worked at the University of the School of Medicine on a a casual basis, you know, no no pensions or anything like that but I was uh, doing administrative work there, and uh, busy some parts of the year, not busy others. Um, I discovered I had a son. He was 34 when I met him, and uh, I knew him until he was 49 when he died of cancer. His cancer was uh, started in his colon, and he had stage four cancer for five and a half years before he died. My grandson was only 10 when, when my son was diagnosed and he was um, almost 16 when my son died just a little over three years ago. And during that period of time, I was able to be in Chatham where he lived, which is a six-hour drive or so quite a bit of the time. I was able to support him financially. I was able to support him uh, physically. I was able to support him psychologically and spiritually. And the only reason I could do that and stay sober was because I went to a lot of meetings in Chatham. There's a group there called the, um, the Three Legacy Group that has 10 meetings a week, seven morning meetings and three different evening meetings. And I became a part of that group when I was down. And they loved me and they supported me. And they hugged me and they gave me the strength to go and do the same thing for my son. Um, in the last seven years or so, I've, I, as, as I said, I was the oldest of, of uh, 15 children. Two of them had died. Uh, one brother committed suicide at the age of 23 because of his bipolar illness. Uh, one died at the age of 42 from a pulmonary embolism, but five more of them died in the last seven years. My second youngest brother, 19 years younger, died of alcoholism, he drank himself to death. He had 15% of his liver left towards the end. It was too late to stop with He couldn't get on a transplant list because of his drinking and he died. Just as three of my uncles have died of alcoholism, one at 48, one at 50, one at 50, 30. I don't think I would have been able to handle any of those things if I'd still been drinking. Well, first of all, I wouldn't be around to have found those things. I would have died in my early 40s. I'm totally convinced of that. But to be here and to be of service to others to be able to help, um, it's an amazing thing truly amazing thing I have a sense of purpose in my life today I have a sense of belonging I have a sense of being a part of and it's all because I acted as bad as I could for as long as I could and then I I I became open-minded enough to follow direction and and to do some simple things not the easy things simple things to allow me to be a part of life rather than being apart from I uh I have a few things that i um, like to finish with. Um, One of them is um, something from the the big book. It's um, page 89, working with others. It says, uh, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch Lonely in Spanish, to see a fellowship grow about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. And I haven't missed it. I do feel as if I have a host of friends. I go to 30 meetings a week because I'm able to help other people. Uh, I go three times a week to Boise, Idaho. I go uh, uh, five mornings a week to Malibu, California, five mornings a week to Nova Scotia. I go to a meeting in England on Sunday afternoons. I I go to uh, uh, a lot of meetings here in Ontario, and uh, and people always say, oh, good, Lloyd's here, whereas in my drinking days, people would have been saying, oh, God, Lloyd's here. There's quite a difference. It makes me feel happily and usefully whole, as the saying goes. And there's an old book that's probably... Uh, not very often mentioned here at this particular group. It's called 24 Hours a Day. It was a Hazelden. But the July the 26th uh, uh, discourse says, uh, When we come to the end of our lives on earth, we'll take no, no material thing with us. We'll not take one cent in our cold, dead hands. The only things that we may take are the things we have given away. If we have helped others, we may take that with us. If we have given our time and money for the good of AA, we may take that with us. Looking back over our lives, what are we proud of? Not what we have gained for ourselves, but what few good deeds we've done. Those are the things that really matter in the long run. What will I take with me when I go? And no matter where I go, whether it's nowhere or somewhere, I'm still going to take, at the close of my life, a look back and say, I was a positive influence in this world. I did what I could for others. I did. Uh, I, did I lived. I didn't just exist. So. That's the greatest gift I've been given. The gift of friendships, the gift of living, the gift of not just existing. So anybody who's here today and fairly new, please keep coming back. It will happen for you as well if you do the work, just as I had to do the work. So thank you so much for asking me to be here. Thank you so much for being a friend. Thank you so much for being there. Thank you so much for listening. Alone, I cannot do this, but together we can.